Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 20. On one of my uh, rare visits to Costco recently, I saw a book, How to Never Look Fat Again. When I just glanced while I was walking down the aisle looking for books, I thought it said How to Never Be Fat Again. And, and so I swung right around because I thought, well, I'm looking for that, you know. Now, this is only How to Never Look Fat Again, which also intrigues me. Um, it, it says that this is the groundbreaking style guide from best-selling author Charla Krupp on how to look 10 pounds lighter, 10 years younger, and 10 times better every day, all year, summer, winter, at the gym, even in a swimsuit. You'll never get dressed the same way again once you discover absolutely the best shades, shapes, and brilliant buys to make you pound, to make the pounds invisible. <laughs> the top ten tips that will make you look thinner by tonight. I'm all about that, you know. I, you know, I can dress differently and make the pounds invisible. Wouldn't that be great? How am I doing? That's the point at which you go, Pastor Dave, where are you? I can't see you. I can't see you. <laughs> of course, the book isn't for men. It's just for women, so I'm out of luck twice. You know the old saying, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, seems like there's a new solution to some struggle, some struggle or another with our bodies every day, and many of them are just not as good as promised. But God has promised the absolute and ultimate cure for this old house in which we live. And we get a glimpse of it in John chapter 20 at, when we see the resurrected Christ. Please follow as I read John 20, verses 19 through 31. Then the same day at evening... Being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach, here, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that's us, those who have not seen and yet believed. 
I want to look at Jesus' resurrection body today. We're not going to consider this whole passage, but the parts of it that speak about his resurrection body. And the first thing that we're going to look at is, is him as a model of our resurrected existence. John is very careful here twice to tell us that the doors were shut when Jesus came in and was standing in the middle of the room. The NIV uses the word locked, but the plain meaning of this Greek word is just shut. But it does say plural doors, not just door. Now, we have double doors in the back of our auditorium, and and maybe your mental image is that of double doors coming into a large room. We have no reason to believe that that was the case. More likely so, it was a door into the room plus a door into the house or the door into the courtyard. Those doors were shut And Jesus came and stood in the midst, literally came and stood in the middle. Luke puts it this way. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the middle of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. Jesus popped up in the middle of the room. And they were terrified. I don't know if Gene Roddenberry had read the scripture before he created the concepts of the Star Trek TV show when people beam down in. But even that doesn't match this because those people slowly left and slowly came and materialized. Jesus, boom, there he was. You might be able to sneak into the back of a room real quietly, people aren't paying attention, and then there you are standing in the back of the room. But you can't sneak into the middle of a group of people. They see you coming, but nobody saw Jesus coming. And so the first thing that we learn here about a resurrected body is this. A resurrection body isn't subject to the laws of nature. Now, I didn't say it's not subject to some laws or laws of God. It's just not subject to what we call the laws of nature. Jesus came, boom, there he was. But the other side of this coin is this. A resurrection body isn't a ghost. Look at verse 20 of of Matthew 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw him. And then when Thomas, who we call the doubter, was around, he said, come here and touch. You can't touch a ghost. Now there's something interesting else that I find about these marks on Jesus. They are not called scars, they're called prints. P-R-I-N-T-S, a print. If you take... if you're old enough to remember a typewriter or if you've seen one in a museum somewhere (laughs) or in the back of my office where I have my grandfather's typewriter, which goes back to the turn of the previous century, there's a piece of metal and on it is the likeness of a letter, an A, a B, a C, a whatever. And there's a ribbon with ink and and the type goes whack on the ribbon and whack on the paper. This is the original. That's the print. Jesus said, in my hands are the prints of the nails. The nails made a mark. They left a mark on my hands. The mental image that I have, 
that I think fits the evidence of the Scripture is what I'd call an unhealed scar. Now, in, in our human existence, we don't have unhealed scars. We either have open wounds that are problems, or we have scars. There's no in-between. Jesus said, look, you see the mark that the nail made? It's right there. Now, was Jesus bleeding? No, he was not. In fact, when he came out of the grave, I believe part of the reason Mary didn't recognize him is because he wasn't a bloody mess like he was when he went into the grave. She was not expecting to see somebody who essentially looked whole and normal. But he had the prints of the nails, and elsewhere we find the print of the nail in the feet and the mark of the spear, the print of the spear, if you will, in his side. Again, we turn to Luke for some more detail. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and they supposed they had seen a spirit. See, they, they thought, this is a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they still did not believe for joy, it was too good to be true. While they still did not believe for joy, they marveled and he said to them, Do you have any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now again, what we see is that a resurrection body is not a ghost. A resurrection body is not subject to the laws of nature, but a resurrection body is also not a ghost. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15 is perhaps the definitive passage of Scripture on a resurrected body. And here is sort of a maybe a thesis statement, if you will, that I would offer to you about the resurrected body. I would say it this way. The resurrection body of Christ was material in ways we do not know. It was tangible and recognizable, but not limited by the physics of this universe. The resurrection body of Christ was material in ways we do not know. It was tangible and recognizable, but not limited by the physics of this universe. In 1 Corinthians 15, I've given you a a chart like this that you can fill in if you'd like as we read through the scripture. We're going to start in verse 35. Apostle Paul is addressing the issue of resurrection, and uh, so there were people who doubted, and, and, and so the question, the skeptic put forward this question. How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? It would appear that they were saying something like this. Look, you know when you bury a body, what happens? So what body are they going to have? You know, is that going to come out of the ground And the Apostle Paul, by God's inspiration, says this in verse 36. Foolish one, what you sow, 
is not made alive unless it dies. The word sow has to do with planting a seed. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but a mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another flesh of bird or fish and of birds. There is also celestial bodies, the, the heavenlies, the stars, and there are terrestrial bodies, things on the earth. But the glory of the celestial is one kind, the glory of the terrestrial is another kind. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. In other words, it is unique. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. The NIV uses the words perishable and imperishable, which probably helps us to understand. When we see the word corruption, we tend to think of political leaders who are on the take. Okay, But the literal meaning of corruption is something that can decay. And so... Uh, you know, at the grocery store, they have perishable foods, and they have, we, they don't call them imperishables, but they have non-perishables, if you will. In the perishable category, there are fresh meats, vegetables, baked goods, and such. In the imperishable category, there are canned goods, hard goods, like paper towels and Twinkies. <laughs> that have a shelf life that is unknown in its extent so far. In talking about a human body, someone has put it this way, from the day of birth, we are running downhill physically. I had a great blessing last night. After a full day of birthday celebrating for, uh, for Raul and our son Ben and our son-in-law Ben and all their families and all their kids were there and uh, we did all kinds of stuff yesterday. And at the end of the day, one of them was sitting on the couch leaning back going, oh dude, I'm worn out. And I went, yeah, welcome to my world, buddy. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever seen that. In the past, there's always, let's play a game. Let's do this. Let's do that. And I'm going, oh. <laughs> Because our physical bodies are subject to corruption. That is, they wear out. That's what this means. Our bodies are perishable. What goes in the ground isn't worth bringing back out of the ground. Okay? But that's not how we're going to be raised. We're going to be raised imperishable. No expiration date. We are going to be raised without the potential for the corruption of our flesh, our physical flesh. Your body, he, he likens it to a seed. He says your body is planted into the ground, but a whole new plant comes up that has a whole different quality. Follow along in verse 43. Or, uh, we'll start at verse 42. So is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. I believe this is what I have called a, the morality or the moral quality of our body. It is dishonorable in its human condition. It doesn't mean your body is, is, is of no value, but what it means is there is sin present in your body. 
Adam and Eve were created without sin. They were not righteousness, righteous. They did not have the righteousness of Christ, but they were also without sin. And when they sinned, their body began to decay as well as their spirit. And so God says we die here with a dishonorable quality to our flesh. But we are raised with an honorable quality, with a quality of glory about us. Uh, Philippians 3.20 puts it this way, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is even able to subdue all things to himself. Our bodies are going to be transformed from from humanly dishonorable to Christ-like honorableness. Secondly, we're going to be, or thirdly, excuse me, we're going to be translated from weakness to strength. Look at verse 43. Again, please. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. When we look at the body of Christ and his ability to move about and to, to either materialize in a room or walk through the doors, whatever it was he did, there is power there that that is unknown to our human existence. There is a different ability between the natural and and the supernatural or the resurrection body. And then fourthly, we look at verse, uh, excuse me, verse 44. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. He says it is sown natural, it is raised spiritual. This perhaps gives us the biggest clue to what is going to be the change. Natural in the scripture means just normal humanity. Uh, We're born, you know, a man and a woman come together and... A baby is a result, and there's just normal human existence. Our existence in resurrection will be spiritual in nature as opposed to just natural human existence. Let's go on to the next. When he tells us about the sources, verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, and if we were to go to Romans 5, we would understand that's a clear reference to Christ, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so the source for our natural body is Adam. The source for our resurrection body is the last Adam, or Jesus Christ. And uh, he goes on to talk about the identity. We have the identity of Adam, the image of Adam. Now I know that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God said he created us in his image, but physically, physically we bear the image of Adam. And he says, what's going to happen is we are physically going to bear the image of Christ. Now, that cannot be in his divinity and his ability to create and his omniscience and so on. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about his resurrected body. We are going to bear the image of the resurrected Christ. And then we come to the limitation. Verse uh, 46, 7. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is of the Lord from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so also are those made of dust. As was the heavenly man, so are those made heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, verse 50, that flesh and blood, our physical human existence, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. There is a limitation. Your physical body cannot go to heaven in its present condition. But the resurrection body is suitable for heaven. It has been made for heaven by God. The vital truth, I believe, is summarized in verse 37. What you sow, you do not sow the body that's going to be, but you sow the grain, you plant the grain. But there is something new and better that comes from it. I never thought about it a whole lot until this week as I was considering this text. When you plant a seed into the ground, it is not only exceedingly small, but exceedingly different from what comes out. You put a seed in the ground and a whole plant comes up from it. It's still wheat, or it's still carrots, or it's still whatever you planted, but it has a different form than the form that went into the ground. John MacArthur, in his commentary, summarized the truth very well when he said it this way. When Jesus was raised from the dead, his glorified body was radically different from the one which died. What came out of the grave was different from what was placed in the grave. It was no longer limited by time, space, and material substance. During his appearances, Jesus went from one place to another without traveling in any physical way. He appeared and disappeared at will and entered rooms without opening the door. In his earthly body, he had done none of those things. Resurrection changed Jesus' body in marvelous and radical ways, and at his return, all resurrection bodies will be changed marvelously and radically. You need to let that sink in just a little bit, don't you? No, we're not going to be divine, but our bodies will be like his body. We are going to have an incredible existence Beyond anything you can imagine. You know, we, we have these goofy images of heaven, of, of a person with a white robe and wings and a harp floating on a cloud. And I don't know where that came from exactly. We have other images of heaven that might resemble a church service. Not totally wrong in some settings. But do you have this image of what your body is going to be like? I mean, just really beyond imagination. So when's it going to happen? When is the moment of having a resurrected body? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In the time that... The apostles were on the earth and the Bible was still being given by God. There were gaps in people's knowledge because they didn't know all of God's truth yet. They didn't have a Bible to open up. They didn't have a concordance to look up things on the scrolls that they did have. And so the apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. It's not an insult. He's saying you have a gap in your knowledge and I don't want you to have any gaps in your knowledge. 
I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And, and if you have any doubt that he's talking about death there, you can go to the story of Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, our friend, is sleeping. And the disciples said, if he sleeps, that's good. He'll get better from his sickness. And Jesus said, no, Lazarus is dead. So clearly he used the word sleep as a reference to death. And in part, you'll see why as we follow through the rest of this truth. I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. I've put together a diagram for you, and I've given you a place in your notes where you could jot it down if this will be helpful to you. You should be able to draw this diagram. You should have this knowledge in your mind because it affects you personally. And it starts at the day of your birth. And I've called this the believer's existence. You started to exist on the day of your conception. You started to breathe the air of earth on the day of your birth. And uh, you, considered, you, you continued on alive on earth until the day of death. Okay, none of you have died yet. Some of you look a little like you're getting close because you're a little tired. But... Uh, None of us have died yet, but when that day comes, the body goes to the grave. Now, it's very important that you make a distinction between where your body goes and where you go. I understand that in this human existence, we don't do anything without a body. There is no such thing as an out-of-the-body experience. The beginning of your out-of-the-body experience is when you die. Body goes to the grave, spirit goes to God. You can put the note down, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says, right now we are absent from God and present in the body. He says, I am much rather willing to be present with the Lord and absent from my body. That is what happens when a Christian dies. Their spirit goes to God, their body goes to the grave. We are without a body for a period of time. Then there are others, as we consider the whole picture here, there are others who continue to be born and live on the earth. And uh, there's coming a point at which uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 calls it the catching away. The word rapture is not in the Bible. The word catching away literally is there. The word rapture is a Latin word that means catching away. A time when Christ comes back to take all of those who are alive off the earth. But at that moment, the scripture says something else is going to happen. He says, the spirits of those who have been in heaven are going to come with Jesus, and their bodies are going to come up and be resurrected. Resurrection has to do with the body coming out of the grave. The rapture event for those who are alive is not a resurrection, because there's no death. So resurrection is for those who have died. 
And what he says is, this body will be raised first, and there will be a new existence. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read it again here at the mi- in a minute. But at this moment, a new existence happens. But something else happens as well. Those who are alive and remain are changed. And our existence is the same as those who have been resurrected. So, the moral of this story is, the future is bright no matter which path it takes. We may live until Jesus comes to take all of the Christians off the planet at once in this rapture event, or we may breathe our last here. And 1 Corinthians 15, 51 puts it this way, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The body in the ground has to be changed according to what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, and your body has to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. I use the word translated on my diagram, that is, changed from the normal human existence into that glorious body that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. The timing of this change is at our death or at that return of the Lord. Now, what ought to be the moral impact of the resurrection of this, of this wonderful future that's ahead for our body? Well, the first impact ought to be the same one that Jesus communicated to the apostles in the upper room. Peace. We can be at peace about the future. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, and the word mansion literally means a a place to dwell, a a place to live. It doesn't mean an independently standing, you know, 3,000 square foot house or something. I would have told you if it was not so, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said to to Thomas, who asked the question, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ wants to take us to heaven to give us that new body. We can be at peace about the future. I visited Helen Blum yesterday. Helen Blum sits over there next to Joyce. And Helen's had cancer for a few months now. And when when she was diagnosed a few months ago, they basically said, you, you don't have a terrible long time to live. And she has been constant from that time. Yesterday, when I went to see her in her hospital bed in her living room, and I wish, I wish I could imitate the way she talks, but she speaks with great emphasis at times like that. She goes, well, I just believe in the Lord, and that's just the way it is, and that's just what you have to do. I told him, he was talking about somebody she'd witnessed to, you can't understand it, you just have to believe it, and that's just the way it is. And then she looks at me, and she's waiting for me to go, amen! <laughs> Could be because she has her hearing aids out as well. But She knows what's coming. She's at peace.
I think that's the most important thing you can figure out in life is to be ready to die. I know there's a lot of other important things. You need to make a good decision about who you marry. You need to be wise in the ways you, you raise your children. You need to you know, make good decisions on your financials. Yeah, those are all important things, but can there possibly be anything more important than being ready to die? There can't be. There can't be because we don't know when it's coming. People like Kobe, who are going to go into the battlefield, have a much greater sense that it could be today. My dad was told by a superior officer at a cert- before a certain event that could have taken place in World War II, he said, you better get right because a lot of you are going to die if this happens. Whoa. You know what, folks? The book of James says we don't know if we have tomorrow. It does, we, we should not look into tomorrow and say, oh, i got lots of time, got lots of time. You know, gee, I'm in good health. I don't even need health insurance. I'm not going to worry about it. And someday, you know, when I get old, I'll accept the Lord. That's not a smart thing. That is not a smart thing. And for my money, it's a waste of some days because you can be at peace. Here's what Jesus says. He says right there, I'm the way. I'm the way. Well, what does that involve? Well, first, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what it involves. The Apostle Paul says, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you're saved. Here it is. Here is the message by which you're saved if you hold fast. In other words, if you really believe this to the extent that you will hold on to it, which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here it is. I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What that means is I have to know that I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Only Jesus and only His sacrifice on the cross could pay for my sin. And that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Not only did He die, but He was buried and came back to life to prove His victory over sin and over Satan, and over the grave. To know that, and I need to believe that. Do you want to know if you're headed for a new resurrection body in heaven with Jesus? Then answer these questions in your heart right now. Do you believe you are a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God who took on human flesh and died to pay for your sin? Are you trusting in Him for salvation alone? Or are you trying to earn it yourself by your good deeds? If you are trusting in Christ alone, then you are a believer. We can be at peace if we believe in Christ as our Savior as we think about the future. Number two, There's a second moral impact. Once we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we should be pure because of the future. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. 
And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. He's talking about this new body. He says, we don't fully understand what's coming. But we do know this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And that has to do with our moral purity and also our physical reality. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. You're going to wake up looking at Jesus someday. If you get sick unto death, or if you have some, you know, you get old and get infirm, you you will taper down, taper down, and at some point you will close your eyes, and when you open them, you'll go, oh my, that would be the coolest. Or you might be like, our friend John Wright in Austria, who was hit by a truck and sent flying a hundred feet and did live to tell about it, but remembers nothing. And his, one of his responses was, you can die and not even know it. Man, that's rocket science. It really is. Because you don't know at what moment you're going to blink your eyes and wake up in heaven. And for that matter, when the rapture comes, according to 1 Corinthians 15, it's only going to take the blink of an eye. We have a a certain mental image about flying through the sky. See ya. But God says, it's going to take as long as it takes you to blink your eye. Boom! And you're going to be there. You're going to close your eyes and open them and go, dude... Now, the question is, how do you want to be when that happens? How do you want to be when that happens? Do you want to be hiding your sin under some clever clothing? And I'm not talking about the sin of, of a few pounds now. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, are you, do you think, you know, I, I know I'm not right with the Lord. I know I don't do the right things. But, you know, he really doesn't see. I kind of have a covering going on here. You know, when you see him face to face, you'll know there's no covering. He already knows it, but you'll know it too. And so, so John says, look, if that's your hope, if you're hoping to see Jesus face to face, then moment by moment by moment, there should be a personal effort to purify yourself. That's really what the Christian life is about anyway. It's about us saying no to sin so that the presence of Christ might more and more overwhelm our lives. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us today. It's so easy to be wrapped up in this life and the stuff of this life. It's so easy to to fret and stew about the things we need to get done, things that we want to do. Help us. Help us to look ahead. Help us to make sure that we are right, that we are that we have believed in Christ so that there is peace in our hearts and help us to be purifying our lives day by day. Help us to honor you by living in that way. I pray in Christ's name, amen.